We are continuing in Matthew chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 1 through 11. This is the temptation of Jesus Christ. We'll read it in just a second. But first, a little bit of a quiz, if you will, for all the kids in here. History lesson or history quiz. I'm going to have Christian back there play a little piece of audio. And I want you to tell me who this is and what the event was. So here we go. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. All right, kids. Who was that, first of all? Sophia. Armstrong. Yeah, what's his first name? Oh, she said it, Neil? Okay, just want to make sure it's not Lance. All right, Neil Armstrong, right. Okay, Neil Armstrong. And what is the event, someone other than Sophia? Kyler, are you raising your sister's hand? So you know the answer then, Kyler? Oh, she does. Now, let's see if you know. Do you know what happened? Any guesses? That's right. It was when man first landed on the moon. And so Neil Armstrong has the famous words that he said when he got off of the Apollo capsule there and stepped onto the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant step for mankind. I was looking up, the reason that was kind of on fresh on my brain was because yesterday Neil Armstrong passed away. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but he passed away at 81 years of age. But when man landed on the moon, it stirred up a newfound confidence in what we could do. Matter of fact, there were lots of predictions that came out. I think it was 1969 was when the landing on the moon happened. There were lots of predictions that came out as to what else we were going to be able to do pretty quickly. We were going to be able to eradicate cancer. We were going to be able to, to, to next thing was Mars and now, well, whatever. And there were lots of different things that we thought, well, the sky's the limit. Man can do just about anything. And there have been quite an amazing amount of progress since... Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Certainly there's been lots of things we've accomplished. Not nearly as many as perhaps people thought we were going to accomplish. But we have accomplished a lot as men. But there's one thing that mankind has never been able to conquer. Mankind has never been able to plant his flag and say, we have done this. We have defeated this. And what man has never been able to conquer, but what continues to plague man and continues to grow in intensity until our Lord Jesus Christ returns, is the plague of sin. Man can land on the moon, but he can't deal with his own sin. Neil Armstrong himself went through a bitter divorce. He divorced his wife of 38 years because of sin in his life. Neil Armstrong passed away yesterday. His body decayed. He was able to land on the moon, but he couldn't keep the decay from happening in himself because he couldn't defeat sin. Sin is a tyrant, ruling men, and men are unable to defeat it. Only one man walked the face of the earth. Only one man took that step. One giant step for man, one leap for mankind... In a sort of way. One man, Jesus Christ, defeated sin. And for those who are in him, sin has been defeated. 
Yes, these bodies will still decay and we will still struggle and we will still fail. But we will be in the process of being made holy, becoming who we already are, sanctified, becoming saints in Jesus Christ. And one day we will be with him and we will be given glorified bodies, bodies that will not decay, bodies that will last an eternity in the joyful rest of our Father. We're looking at the passage of the temptation of Jesus Christ where Jesus goes to war against Satan and against sin. This is part two of this sermon on the temptations of Christ. I really intended for it just to be a part two, part one, part two. I, I'm not going to get it done today either. I really, I really am sorry. I stayed up really late last night trying to figure out some way to make this get into one sermon, and finally I just gave up. I can't, I can't do it. So we're going to look at the second temptation today, the third temptation next week. So let me read the text, the passage of Scripture real quick here, and then I will recap a little bit from last week, and then we'll get into today's focus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you. If you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would bless the reading of the word as it went forth, that it would not return void. And I pray, Lord, now that you would bless the preaching of the word. Lord, may you keep my tongue from presumption. Keep my tongue from my own opinions. And let me speak clearly your word. So, Father, I pray now that you would have your way with the rest of our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'll recap a little bit of last week's sermon. Um, I can't give you the full grasp of last week's sermon. Matter of fact, I would encourage you, if you want to kind of get the full grasp of the temptations, to go back and to listen to last week's sermon. Go back and listen to it online. But I'll give you a little bit of a recap. First of all, we need to see that this, the temptations of Christ are very, very, very much tied to the baptism of Christ. Sometimes the chapter divisions can cause us some confusion um, and we, we tend to think, well, this maybe happened a lot later or whatever. But this is directly after the baptism of Jesus Christ, directly after God the Father from heaven pronounces these words. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
and what happens here in the temptations is Satan is going on a direct attack against that word. Against what God the Father has said about Jesus. And this is a direct attack on God's truth. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God is sovereign over this event. God sends his son into the wilderness to test him. Satan's intent uh, intent is to tempt Jesus. God's intent is to test the son. Satan's tempting and God's testing coincide in this event here, but they have radically different motives and radically different intended outcomes. But why? Why does the Spirit send Jesus into the desert to be tempted? Because Jesus has to identify with sinners. Part of his task, his messianic ministry, is to identify with sinners. He is, after all, the new Israel. We've talked about that. He is the new Adam. And he is standing in his people's place as he is being tempted. He is going out into the wilderness to be a substitute. And to do what we sinners could not do. And that is to fully resist the onslaught of temptation. And thus begin the defeat of Satan, of Satan and sin on our behalf. And Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 clearly teach this to us. So I'm going to repeat these verses again. Although I've mentioned them a lot lately. But you can't mention them enough. It says in Hebrews 2 verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in Hebrews 4 verse 15 we have this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we can draw near to God. We can trust in God. We can draw near to Him for help in our time of need because we have a faithful and merciful high priest who has gone before us. Now there are three general areas of temptation represented here as Jesus is being tempted. Three general areas of temptation because what Jesus is being tempted with are temptations that are common to man. Don't look at this text and think, oh, these are some sort of special temptations. For Jesus, Well, they are in a way, but in reality, at their core, they are the same temptations we face. They are temptations common to men. And I, I gave you last week, gave you three basic um, different types of temptation that are, that are in this text. Okay? The three general areas of temptation are temptation about provision, about protection, and about exaltation. Last week we talked about provision. Today we're going to talk about protection. And also we saw that all three of these areas are directly related to what we believe about who we are, who our Father is, and what our Father has said. That is key to understanding the temptations right there. Because remember, the temptations are an assault upon that last line from chapter 3. This is my beloved Son, who Jesus is, with whom I am well pleased. Okay, he's the Father speaking from heaven. He is saying that he's well pleased and he's attacking the fatherhood of, of, of God the Father. And then also Satan is attacking God's word, what God has said. And so these are the root of each one of these temptations. First of all, we saw last week that the enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to serve our appetites instead of trusting our Father. 
The enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to serve our appetites instead of trusting our Father. It all has to do with provision. Jesus was tempted and so are we to what Spurgeon called unbelieving self-help. Don't believe God. Instead, help yourself. Solve your own problems. Provide for yourself. The enemy will start by appealing to very natural needs. Natural, ordinary needs and desires. Then the enemy will, will persuade us that the Father is holding back from us. You need this. You want this. And God's not giving it to you. God doesn't want to give it to you. He's not a good father. And finally, the enemy will convince us that our appetites are a better guide than God's word. Follow what you want. Have it your way. Your appetites, what you desire, is a better guide for your life than what God's word says. You see, Adam and Eve had a word from God, but they trusted their appetites instead. The Israelites had a word from God, but they trusted their appetites instead. Esau, same. Samson, same. David, same. Solomon, same. All throughout history, rebellious humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. Not because God has left himself without some sort of witness. God has not left himself without a witness. It's that we trust our appetites instead of his authoritative word. But Jesus now, in this temptation, stands in our place receiving the full onslaught of satanic seduction. But he doesn't give in. He stands trusting his father, fully believing his father's word. And with each lunge of the enemy's attack, Jesus counterattacks with the sword of the spirit. Each time, he pulls the sword from the scabbard of Deuteronomy. So all three times that Jesus parries Satan's attack, he does so from the book of Deuteronomy. And by quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus is further emphasizing the fact that he is the new Israel. He is standing in the place of his children, his people. He is the obedient son, unlike the wayward son who was Israel. And in the first temptation, he said this from Deuteronomy 8.3, it is written, man... Jesus identifies himself with men here. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that was the first temptation and the first victory over that temptation that we see Jesus give us here in the text. And so with that intro and recap, it's time for us now to look at the last two temptations, which are closely related to the first temptation. They all sort of flow together like some sort of unholy current. First of all, as we said, the enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to serve our appetites instead of trusting our Father. And the second thing I want us to see, and this is the best way I can sum it up, is that the enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to seek security in signs and shortcuts instead of resting in our Father. Let me say that again. The enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to seek security in signs and shortcuts instead of resting in our Father. It has everything to do with protection. Verse 5 of Matthew 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. The adversary is a very smooth operator. Now that Jesus has, has deflected the first temptation and has shown that he, Jesus, does indeed tr tr trust fully 
in God's providential provision, now the old snake takes him to the top of the temple and says, in essence, okay, you've shown you believe that the Father will provide for you. Well, now demonstrate for everyone to see that you believe that the Father will protect you as well. I mean, fathers not only provide for their children, fathers protect their children. Jesus, show everyone that your Father is going to protect you. But there's more. There's an even more sinister and underhanded temptation, okay, than there was in the first one here. Because the devil himself this time quotes Scripture. You see, Satan knows Scripture. Did you know that? Satan knows the Bible. He knows it better than we do. He has it memorized. He doesn't believe it. He hates it. But he knows it. And he knows it well enough that he knows exactly how to twist and misrepresent it. He says this. He quotes from Psalm 91 to try to justify his petition for Jesus to throw himself down. He says, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In essence, he is hissing, Jesus, are you really going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? How about this word, Jesus? Psalm 91. How about this word? Are you going to live by that? Oh, this is subtle. And this is deadly. You see, Psalm 91 is a psalm about God protecting his children. Satan takes a few selected portions of this psalm about God's protection. He twists it just enough to try to convince Jesus to seek God's protection in the wrong way. He is trying to tempt Jesus to believe that he needs to somehow prove that he does trust his father's protection and prove that his father's protection and his father's word are indeed genuine. Again, he's attacking the same three things. Who you are, who your father is, and what your father has said. I want us to see that this is Satan's first tactic here in the second temptation. So in the subpoints there under number two, the first thing I have written there is Satan will try to get us to misuse God's word. Satan will try to get us to misuse God's word. Many Christians read God's word like the devil. And I don't mean they read it a lot. I mean they read it like the devil. Just like he does here. We often pick a passage out of context and then presume upon God that he must keep that supposed promise in the way that we now want him to. And if he doesn't, we get mad and we distrust God and distrust his word. Many Christians read and interpret scripture satanically. I don't know of any other way to say it. Because it's the way Satan does it. So if it's the way Satan does it, I guess it's satanic. And therefore, many Christians are walking around interpreting scripture satanically. Let me give you a couple of examples. One that I've given here in the pulpit before. And this will probably be some of y'all's favorite verse. I just want you to use it in the right way, okay? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. How many Christians have I heard who take that verse and use it as a, I don't know, as a way to hold God hostage to making sure everything works out right in their life? Well, God, you said you don't have any plans for harm. Only for good. And they take this verse and they use it as some sort of promise that was never intended to be used that way. Are you aware that Jeremiah 29.11 is the portion of a letter written to the exiles? This is written by Jeremiah to the exiles who had already been deported out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. And they were already in Babylon. And they write a, a letter is written to them to encourage them. And this is part of that encouragement. Now, there is a way that we can apply this passage to our scripture in a general way. We look that we are, we are God's children. We are his people. We are the new Israel of God in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can, take, we can be assured that God is working all things together for our good, which I think is the way to take this verse. But we cannot go around claiming this verse and, as, as some sort of guarantee that we're not going to face any evil. And that everything that God does in our life is just going to be peachy and wonderful and dandelions and butterflies. God very well may ordain some very challenging days for us. We've got to be careful just grabbing a verse out of context. We've got to know what, what, what was this verse meant for? How was it used? What was the purpose of this verse for the exiles? This was God speaking to the nation of Israel. Let me give you another one that just came across my email this week. And um, I run the risk of some of my relatives possibly listening to this sermon. Psalm 109.8. I got that this week. This is the psalm. It says, this is the verse, May his days be few, may another take his office. Have you all gotten that one? It said, pray this passage over President Obama. May... His days be few, may another take his office. I encourage all my friends and relatives and family members to pray this prayer over Obama. I was so sick when I got that. I really was. I was very angry. I had typed up a fairly lengthy email to my relative and then remembered that we are called to be meek. And I deleted it. Okay? I didn't send it. I had a discussion with my dad about it. My dad's not the one who sent it. Um, is that what we're called to do? Is that how we should use that verse? Is that what that means, that we should be praying for the exit of our president? Or are there passages perhaps in, I don't know, maybe Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 that actually tell us to be honoring our leaders, praying for them, Obeying them, submitting to them. You see, if you're going to pray Psalm 109, verse 8, well, you need to be aware of the context. Here's the rest of here's some Here's some following verses. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him nor any to pity his fatherless children. 
May his posterity be cut off and may his name be blotted out in the second generation. My friends, if you pray the rest of that over Obama and put that in an email, you may have the secret service at your door. That's satanic hermeneutics. That's how Satan wants us using the Bible. Like some sort of book of incantations with little snippets that we can take out and pray and, yeah, make this happen or make that happen. Or claim this promise. The Bible isn't a book of spells to give us what we want to make things happen. You see, Satan conveniently left out the rest of Psalm 91, which teaches us that God is our protector even in the midst of challenges and difficulties. Psalm 91 is not a promise to keep us from trouble, but a promise that God is with us in the midst of trouble. Psalm 91.15 even says... When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. That's the promise of Psalm 91. The reason we try to conjure up protection from misquoted verses is that we want to make God say what we want to hear him say. Instead of trusting in what he really has to say. You see, when we understand that his word actually says, when we understand what his word actually says, it requires Trust. It requires faith. It requires resting in God. It requires us being able to trust the fact that we can't explain everything. We just have to trust in God. We have to put our faith in Him. Let me give you one more example. Someone may say to you, I heard this quoted once um, as a team was going off to the mission field. They said, don't worry, everything's going to be great. You need to pray this promise. Luke 21, 18. These are Jesus' words. Not a hair on your head will perish. Claim that promise right now. Let's all pray it. Let's claim that promise over our missions team. Whoa, wait a second. Because let's look at that verse in context. Matter of fact, back up two verses. It says this. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a head on your hair, not a, not a hair on your head will perish. Okay, so not a hair on my head will perish must mean something other than no one's going to get hurt on this mission trip if we pl- claim this verse and pray it to the Lord. That's satanic hermeneutics. That's exactly what Satan wants you thinking. So that when you do get on the mission field and boom, someone is martyred for the faith, your faith goes out the window. But God, we prayed, we prayed that not a, not a hair on our heads would perish. You see, we got to understand that God's definition of being protected by him has little to do with the here and now. And has everything to do with eternity. God is protecting his elect even when they are slaughtered. For we are not to fear him who kills the body. We are to fear him who has the power to cast into hell. That's what the scriptures teach us. And if we are in Christ, then yes, we are protected. We are secure even when we are killed. Even when we are insulted. Even when we are ridiculed. We are still protected and not a hair on our head is perishing because we are in Christ and we have security in him. They can do whatever they want to this body. I'm with God forevermore. I don't care. 
Not a hair on our head will perish. If they kill this body, well, I'm rushed into the presence of God. And I will one day be rejoicing with a glorified body with some glorified hair that won't recede. Oh, Christian, know your Bible. Your tempter knows the Bible. He knows it well enough to use it against you. He'll try to confuse you. He'll misuse Scripture. Scriptures taken out of context are dripping with the serpent's venom. And unfortunately today, it's all over the airwaves. It's in books. It's all over the Internet. We have to be careful. So Satan's first tactic is to get us to make God's Word say what it doesn't mean. But secondly here, the enemy will try to get us to force God's hand. The enemy will try to get us to force God's hand. I mean, that's what happens. When you take the scriptures out of context, then you begin to try to force God's hand. That's exactly what Satan wants us trying to do. This temptation is all about testing God instead of trusting God. To see the full force of this temptation, we need to look at Jesus' response and where he draws his response from. So Jesus parries the dragon's attack with Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He says this, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, when we go to Deuteronomy 6 and we look at verse 16, we see those exact words, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But the verse continues and it says, as you tested him at Massah. As you tested him at Massah. Now, what's that? What's Massah? What happened there? Well, the key to understanding this temptation is to know, and to know how it's directed at Jesus and at us, is to understand how the Israelites failed at Massah. So let's go look there, Exodus 17. You can turn there if you want to. Exodus chapter 17. I'm just going to read parts of Exodus 17, but I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water. Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So so Moses here is saying, They're quarreling, they're fussing about water, is a testing of the Lord. And so he goes to the Lord, complains to the Lord, the Lord gives him a solution. Verse 6. This is what the Lord says to him. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord. Here it is. Here's what I want us to focus on. They tested the Lord by saying... Is the Lord among us or not? That's how they tested the Lord. Is the Lord among us or not? Now this event follows the events where they'd already complained about bread and where God had already given them manna and they still didn't believe. They even tried to store up the manna. But this is more than just about their appetites. That's what we looked at last week. It's about protection. For the scriptures say they were testing God by asking Is the Lord among us or not? They needed a sign for their security. They wanted proof that God was with them. Evidence that God would protect them. They wanted signs and security. 
But instead of finding their security in who God had demonstrated himself to be already, and in who God said he was, and in what God had already promised to them, they listened to the serpent as he convinced them that God was not a good father and God was not going to protect them. He's no father. You're going to die out here. You're going to die of thirst. God's not with you. So instead of trusting God, they tested God. We need proof, God. Proof that you are with us. Proof that you will protect us. And this is at the heart of this temptation here. The enemy wants us to seek protection and security on our terms. And thus we try to force God's hand and make him protect us. Jump, Jesus. If he is your father, he has to protect you. There's a whole industry of false teaching based on this premise. That if you say and do the right things with the right amount of faith, that God has to respond. I've actually heard it said from a pulpit, God has to do what you say when you say it with enough faith. Friends, that is satanic. That is from the lips of a serpent. God has to do what you say so long as you say it with enough faith. Most who teach such garbage do so with texts that they had violently ripped out of context in order to create a pretext for whatever their flesh wants. This venomous teaching says that if I demonstrate my faith and do or say X, God must respond with Y. And so we we boldly, arrogantly try to remove God from his throne and force his hand. The enemy is saying, jump, Jesus. Show your faith. Show your faith in the Father. Jump. But true faith is never us-centered. True faith is never us-centered. True faith is always God-centered. True faith never forces, God, forces ourselves upon God, but instead rests in God. When you think you're acting in faith and your act of faith is simply your desire to get something for you, and maybe, not, maybe it's not a Mercedes like the really blatant false teachers say, but maybe it's just something else. Oh God, if I just have enough faith, you're going to, if I just, just the, the, say the right kind of faith-filled prayers, you're going to bring peace into my life. It's not a Mercedes, it's peace. It's still trying to force God's hand. True faith is never us-centered. Oh God, if I just do this or if I just believe this, then something's going to happen. True faith is God-centered. God, regardless of what happens to me, I'm resting in you. I'm putting all my weight, all of my hope in you. This passage of Scripture, Psalm 95, passage of Scripture that I read this morning about singing to the Lord and singing about the rock of our salvation. Well, I only read the first half of that psalm. Here's the second half. It relates directly to this text today. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, Though they had seen my work 
For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Satan wants us to be convinced that we need security. And we need a sign from God to show us that we're going to get that security right now. Instead of resting in him. Instead of understanding that our full rest, our true rest, will only come once we're with him. Don't believe Satan's lie that if you just act with enough faith, God will have to bless you somehow. Those who believe such things really like verses like Hebrews 11.33. Hebrews 11.33 talks about people of faith. It says, some who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. People who say, well, God has to respond to me so long as I have enough faith, love that. Say, look, see, God's going to do all these amazing things so long as you just have enough faith. But if those who believe that lie of Satan will really have a hard time with the rest of that passage. Verse 35 of Hebrews 11 continues, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Faith is trusting God, believing in what we cannot see, knowing that he is our good father. If it means that the mouth of the lion is miraculously closed, so be it. If it means that the mouth of the lion tears our flesh apart, so be it. Both are accepted by faith. Psalm 91 doesn't exempt the believer from the battle. It exhorts him to trust God in the battle. John 16, was my, well, I guess it was my life verse. When people would ask, hey, do you have a life verse? That was a popular thing when I was in high school. Man, you got to have a life verse. So I thought I had to have a life verse. So I found a life verse. This is my life verse, John 16, 33. I'll just quote part of it. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, part of me thinks you're asking for trouble when you make that your life verse. But that's the part of me that interprets Scripture satanically. Because this isn't about conjuring up stuff. We trust God. That we will have tribulation. It's going to have some difficulty. But take heart. If you're in Christ, guess what? He has triumphed. He has overcome the world. We may not be health, wealth, and prosperity adherents openly, but secretly we practice similar things. If I just pray the right way, God will respond. If I just read the right amount of Bible, then, then God will make my life better. If I just repeat these words, then God will save me. And in the dark recesses of our heart, we've replaced the blasphemous phrase, if God loves us and if we have enough faith 
And if we do the right things, he will give us a Mercedes with an equally blasphemous phrase. If God loves us and if we have enough faith and if we have done the right things, he will give us peace at home. He'll give us a good marriage. He has to, right? Comfort. He'll give us enough to live on. He'll give us obedient kids. A good relationship at work. If I, if I just do the right things in my quiet time, I'm going to have a good relationship at work. Or a church without any strife. Or 100 members. Or maybe 200. Wait, 300 would be perfect. Yes. If we just do the right things. If Harvard's, if we just do the right things, we're going to have 300 people here. If we just have enough faith. And if any of these things are missing in our life, we assume that God is not among us. Oh, Christian, we must be careful with our confirmations. Careful with our confirmations. Thank God for working out the details in your life, but don't hold God's will hostage to the details. If God works out all the details, and you're doing something, and you're moving this way, and all the details just seem to fall in place, that's great. But don't look at that necessarily as a confirmation that this is God's will. Satan can make some things work out pretty good in your life too. Or if things are just falling apart, don't take that as a confirmation that this isn't God's will. That's signs. You're wanting signs. Confirmations, Lord. You want to put the fleece out. You want to seek an omen. That's sorcery according to the scriptures. I've probably told the story before, and I heard it from a, a missionary, I think, when I was real young in um, the school I was going to. And he was sharing his testimony. It was a wonderful testimony. But I'll never forget this one story he told, and it didn't sit well with me at the time. And it fits right into what we're talking about today. He was saying he, was trying, he and his wife were trying to decide if they were going to go overseas to be missionaries. And they were really struggling with this. Should we go or should we not go? Now, how do you interpret God's will in a situation like that? You read God's will in the Word. He says he's sending people to preach the Word to all ends of the earth. You want to go? Go! Now, but for these guys, they were at the ocean. They went to take a vacation to sort of think through some of this. And while they were in the water... The husband's glasses got knocked off his face and they fell into the water. They were expensive glasses. And he looks at his wife and says, oh no, I dropped my glasses. He says, honey, if I reach down and find my glasses and I find them, that's going to be confirmation that we go to the mission field. And if I don't, then we're staying here. And she says, okay. And he reaches down and what did he find? Sure enough, it wasn't a sand dollar. He brings up the glasses. I mean, I can just see the story, the light beaming through the clouds. He's holding the glasses. Now, I don't know. The guy could have had the glasses under his toe for all I know. He wanted to go. She didn't want to go. Now he's got a way to make it work. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. Regardless, that's not how we seek God's will. Not according to the scriptures. That's satanic. That's an omen. God, give me a sign. That's what exactly what... Satan was tempting Jesus to do. Jump off, Jesus. The angels will whoop. Show us all. Show God what kind of faith you have. And God's going to show you how much he loves you, man. 
Go for it. That's the Massah failure. Is the Lord among us or not? Is God's Holy Spirit in you? You don't need to pull glasses out of the sand if God's Spirit resides in your heart. You need to pray and seek the Spirit. You need to look at the way He's equipped you. You need to ask the Spirit to give you faith, to trust Him. And you need to step out and do what He's leading you to do. Instead, we want to put out the fleece. We want to test God instead of trusting God. My friends, signs won't convince us anyway. If we don't believe God's word, we won't believe signs. That's what Jesus said, Luke 16, 31. He said to them, if you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus had given hundreds of signs. So many that John said he couldn't even record in the scriptures all the miracles that Jesus had done. Hundreds of signs, yet it wasn't enough for the unbelieving heart. You see, the unbelieving heart doesn't have a problem with the signs. The unbelieving heart has a problem with the word. The unbelieving heart doesn't believe the word. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you've never surrendered your life to Christ. He's never come in and invaded your heart with regenerating grace. Well... Your problem isn't that you need some sort of sign to convince you that Christianity is the way to go or that Jesus is the one to follow. Your problem is with the very clearly spoken gospel word. That's where your problem is. The word of God stands. Some want signs. Others want airtight logical arguments and empirical evidence in order to believe. Both want proof. They want to test God instead of trusting God. And so Paul says that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. The gospel is what we preach. Not signs and wonders. Not airtight apologetic arguments. Not saying that those aren't bad. Know how to defend your worldview. But ultimately, me convincing you of my worldview will not save you. Only the gospel will save the unbelieving heart. Our hope is not in signs and man-made, man-centered wisdom, but in the gospel. Do you want evidence that God is with you? Let me ask you this. Are you growing in holiness? Is the gospel at work in you? The way God forges holiness is very often through crushing trials. And rarely through cushy living. God rarely increases your holiness by giving you a cushier life. He can do it. But usually it's the trials, difficulties. Do you want evidence that God is with you? Is Jesus becoming more and more every day a superior pleasure in your life? Is he becoming a superior pleasure than your appetites that we talked about last week? Is he becoming a superior pleasure than your security that we're talking about today? The reason we usually want proof is we want Faith that comes without sacrifice. Faith that comes without pain. We want, in essence, shortcuts. You see, this temptation that Jesus faced was also a shortcut, which is my last point. The enemy, go back one for me. The enemy will try to get us to alter God's plan. 
The enemy will try to get us to misuse God's word and therefore force God's hand, which is ultimately an attempt to try to alter God's plan. Jesus knew that his father could instantly send angels to protect him. Jesus did know that his father loved him. And he did know and trust perfectly that his father was his protector. But he also knew that his loving and protecting father could and would ordain suffering for him as well. A quick jump would have been a shortcut to all of that. Instantly, his messiahship would have been well known. Instantly, angels would have appeared. There would have been all the attention, all those people in Jerusalem without any of the pain. After all, you know the Jewish rabbis? Many of the Jewish rabbis believed that the Messiah, when he came, was going to come at the pinnacle of the temple. And so Satan has him right there. All those rabbis down there, you don't have to go through all of that, them not believing you and all that stuff. You just jump. They're expecting it anyway. You jump off of here and show them you're the Messiah. Those angels swoop down, pick you up. Woo! It would be the greatest thing anyone's ever seen. A shortcut to glory. Fame and power. No pain. Jesus would hear this exact temptation later. You see, Satan's lurking in the shadows all throughout Jesus' life. This exact, exact temptation later, Matthew 16. Okay, Jesus has begun to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And what does Peter say? Peter comes up and begins to rebuke him and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. We're not going to let the suffering come, Jesus. No, that's not going to happen to you. You see, Jesus sees the snake behind Peter. He looks directly at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was a slow, slow learner because later in Matthew 26 we read that um, when Jesus is being arrested, Peter takes out the sword to try to defend Jesus, chops off the ear of one of the um, guards. And Jesus says to him, Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You see, Jesus could have taken the shortcut then as well. The shortcut was always available to him. On the cross. If you're truly the Son of God, come down from there. But Jesus trusted the word of his Father. He says, as he continues to rebuke Peter, he says, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus knew who he was, knew who his father was, and knew what his father's word said, and he believed in it. But Satan's temptation is always lurking in the shadows for us as well. How does this temptation, how does this last part manifest itself for us? Well, if we believe in twisted interpretations of Scripture, and therefore we're trying to force God's hand, we will ultimately not submit to his plans for our lives because they very well may be difficult. We don't like to hear Jesus say that those who follow him are going to be persecuted as he was persecuted. We don't like to hear Jesus say that those who hated him are going to hate us too. We don't like to hear Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and live for Christ. That means that it may be a long road. 
The road to Golgotha is long and difficult. The shortcut to glory is what Satan wants us to take. But the long road means we may be ostracized. We may never have worldly success. We may never be admired by the people of this world. Our church may never get as big as we would like to see it. We may never get any worldly recognition or attention. We may even be called names. God's plan very well may involve our humiliation. We may be defamed or defrauded. We may lose all our possessions. We may lose more than that. You see, Jesus gave up the chance for premature glory in order to be called a drunkard and to be called a glutton and to be called a sinner and to be called demon-possessed. Jesus gives up the shortcut to glory, the shortcut to vindication in order to experience humiliation. Jesus gives up the shortcut to embrace the long, agonizing road to Golgotha. And this leads us directly into the next temptation. They really flow together. That's why I struggled so hard last night. I really wanted to get these in. So this will flow directly into the very next temptation that Satan puts before our Lord. But for now, let us believe God's word. It says this in Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The desire for glory is not a bad desire. We will appear with Christ in glory one day. But Satan's promising us us a shortcut to glory here and now that we cannot give in to. Neil Armstrong, he did pass away yesterday. I don't know if he was saved or not. know nothing about the man's religious or not necessarily religious, but just his life, his faith. I don't know anything about it. But I do know this, that if you die today and you are not hidden with Christ in God, then there won't be any glory. Just eternal punishment. Deserved, very much deserved. But for those in Christ, there is eternal glory. Very much undeserved. And so I appeal to you today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, then please take the time to talk to one of the members here. Talk to me after the service, during the fellowship meal. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the gospel. It's a glorious thing to know. What glorious peace there is to know. That you are hidden in Christ. Hidden with Christ in God. When you have that knowledge, (laughs) it really doesn't matter what they do to you. It really doesn't matter how well your life is going. Because we belong to Christ. And that's what's most important. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And conclude with a word of prayer and one song. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your mercy upon us, Lord. We are rebels. Every single one of us in here have rebelled against you. We are the children of Israel. We are the children of Israel at Massah, looking 
but not seeing. All that you've done for us. And grumbling and complaining. Testing you instead of trusting you. Saying, are you really with us? Oh Lord, forgive us of our sin. Our only hope is that Jesus Christ went into the wilderness and experienced this exact temptations that we've given into on our behalf. And he never gave in. And because of his righteousness, we can stand before the throne of God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that what you did at the cross was to shed your perfect, innocent, sinless blood to forgive the sins of your people, but also to give your righteousness to them so that a, 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 an insurmountable debt that we could never pay has been canceled and an insurmountable riches of righteousness that we could never attain has been credited to us. And only on that, only based upon that gospel truth, do we have any hope whatsoever. Oh Lord, my prayer as we go through the temptations is not for us to muster up a bunch of strategies for defeating temptation. My desire is that we'll see and savor Christ how he defeated temptation and put all our hope in him and beg him for his grace to work within us, his spirit to work in us, to grant us the grace to defeat temptation. No temptation has seized us except what is common to man. And God, we believe that you will provide a way out so that we may stand up under it. All in the power and in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. It's in that name we pray. Amen.